Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. Today is December 4th, 2015. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all across the planet are Doug, Gabby, Erica, and Tiffany. So we have a full set of hosts today. Welcome, everybody. Hello. Hi. Hi. So today we have a uh, what could be considered a rather depressing topic. We're going to be talking about the radiation situation. Um, and we've all kind of mutually agreed that after looking into this information, we're like, oh, damn. Um, <laughs> it, it's, hard to, it's hard to talk about. Um, so uh, we're going to start off the show here with a little clip from a tune just to kind of add a lighter air, and then we'll get into the dark stuff. Algeria to France, 
the South Atlantic, Kazakhstan, yeah, everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. Most of the, most of these tests were done in uh, in rural areas, um, far from uh, population populated areas. But as we know, you know, radiation doesn't discriminate. Once it gets into the environment, it spreads and it uh, it bioaccumulates in the food chain. Uh, yeah. One of the most unfortunate figures about this is uh, there have been 528 atmospheric detonations uh, that have taken place uh, since the beginning of nuclear testing, which is just, I mean, it's a staggering number when you think of the amount of radiation that's released by one. Mm. Uh, so there's quite a bit. I mean, and that's just, that's publicly available, you know, information about uh, nuclear bomb testing that has gone on. Uh, you can deduce, deduce that there's been a harmful amount of radiation released just from that, um, but there's also been a lot that have not been publicly talked about. And uh, kind of to get us started here, I want to play a little clip um, from a 2003 interview that uh, Michio Kaku, who some of our listeners might be familiar with, did on the Art Bell Show. Um, and I had it. I'm just trying to find it in our uh, in our files here. Um, so Michio Kaku is a uh, physicist, and he's been making the rounds, and uh, he's talked quite a bit about uh, Fukushima uh, in the public eye, as well as um, as other issues of physics and nuclear radiation. And I am having a hard time finding this. So, uh, in the interest of time, uh, Erica, would you mind going ahead with some of the information that you had? And we'll, we'll talk about that first, and I'll see what I can do about getting this clip on. Yeah, no problem. So, um, just in September of this year, uh, the 28th, an article came out from the Anti-Media by Carrie Welder, and it was called The Top top secret, the worst nuclear disaster in U.S. history. And basically, um, there was an in-depth investigation by NBC4 in Southern California, and uh, some whistleblowers and experts came forward to to explode, (laughs) expose this little-known catastrophe, (laughs) um, which occurred uh, north of Los Angeles in 1959. Um, basically, there is was a lab there called the uh, Santa Susa um, Field Lab, and um, basically, this lab worked on top secret nuclear tests involving rocket engineering, missiles, and nuclear power and energy. And um, there was uh, a leak, and basically, um, the leak was um, over 300 times the allowable amount of radiation in surrounding neighborhoods. Um, The contamination is now uh, linked to up to 60% increase in cancer in the area, and the government Mm -hmm. still refuses to acknowledge this colossal mistake. So basically, uh, this happened in uh, 1947, um, two years after the United States dropped the nuclear bombs on Japan, the North American Aviation Corporation opened a 2,800-acre nuclear test site in Ventura County, just miles from San Fernando and Simi Valley, um, two adjacent valleys located north and northwest of the city of Los Angeles. 
um, it produced aircraft and other, you know, military industrial complex type missiles, rocket engineering, things like that. And so they were basically um, testing, and and it was top secret, and they had kind of a meltdown, and uh, they decided that start letting the radiation out into the environment. And a lot of the men that actually worked at the plant were concerned because of the winds and their families were in the nearby neighborhoods. And the author makes a really good statement in this article. He says that the ongoing tragedy was driven by America's darkest demons from dogmatic militarism to corporate aggressiveness and ongoing government and corporate efforts to cover up the disaster is nothing short of staggering. Yeah. And, um, you know, so they're calling it one of the worst nuclear disasters in history. You know, that they hardly anybody knows about it. Yeah, that hardly anybody yeah. knows about it. Um, I guess this whistleblower, John Pace, now in his 70s, started working at the facility in January um, 1959 and was present on the day of the partial meltdown. He's spoken out in recent years because of his guilty conscience. Um, He said the radiation in that building got so high it went clear off the scale. They were not able to contain the radiation that was leaking from the reactor Blaming equipment failure, Pace said the men working at the facility had two choices. Let the reactor explode. Uh, A nuclear detonation, Pace said, would have been just like the Chernobyl reactor blowing up or open the reactor and let the radiation flow out into the atmosphere. So that's basically what happened. Didn't he say the radiation leak was so bad he could see it out like out on the pavement? Yeah. Yeah. And also, and so, uh, one thing from that article, they also said that uh, the radiation got so bad that they uh, started forbidding any of the workers to wear their radiation-detecting badges because they knew that the the levels were so high, they were above, uh, they would be detecting levels above um, safe levels. Safe levels. Not that there really is any safe level, but um, I, I thought that was pretty disgusting. It just kind of looks into the whole cover-up issue of it. Yeah, and and in the article, they talk about how the North American aviation knew that this was a possibility, you know, and they continued to go ahead and test um, over 30,000 rocket tests during, you know, the decades-long tenure. Many were for NASA, as well as advanced weapons, you know. I think they also knew that, according to the the wind in that, particular area that if there was an accident the fallout would be like tremendous but they chose to build it there anyway yeah unbelievable so that's just yeah. they're really incredible <laughs> <laughs> yeah one of many but yeah it's, it's really interesting that that is kind of labeled the worst nuclear disaster in u.s history and nobody knows about it everybody if you think mm-hmm. about the worst nuclear disaster in u.s history everybody just thinks of three mile island which was bad in and of itself, don't get me wrong, but the fact that this one is, like, way worse, nobody knows about it. People are continuing to live in those areas and are continuing. I mean, these things don't break down for, what, thousands of years? So, I mean, they've, they've basically completely obliterated this area of, of the United States, and, and nobody knows. Everybody's still living there as if nothing's going wrong. 
Yeah, yeah, I mean, even in 1989, the Department of Energy did a study and they found radiation in the soil, groundwater, bedrock of the hilltop, um, you know, and a 60% increased cancer rate, you know, of yeah. people in that area. That means there is really no organic food from that area, especially because apparently up to 90, 94% of uh, radionucleates, you know, get incorporated into the body through the food because they're, you know, in the soil. So all our agricultural products are very rich in radioactivity. So there's really no organic food growth. And that area of California is basically what they call the bread basket for the United States. I mean, that's where they grow a large portion of all food that people yeah. It really is, especially when you consider that. Uh, no, you said that was in forty-seven. Um, well, the plant, oh. yeah, the the plant opened in forty-seven, but the leak was in fifty-nine. Still, that that was what fifty years before uh, Fukushima happened, and when people consider, yeah. you know, uh, California food radiation, those kind of topics, they think of Fukushima now. But, you know, that radiation has been bioaccumulating uh, in the food chain there for, for 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing that I've, I've you know, that, that is so overwhelming in all of this information, just doing uh, research in the past and doing research particularly for this show, is that you just become overwhelmed with the fact that this stuff is surrounding you constantly. We are always being exposed to this all the time. It's everywhere, and it's kind of inescapable, and that's extremely depressing. Yeah. I mean, there are a few things that we can do, um, and we'll touch on that later in the show. There are some things that you, you can do to protect yourself, uh, specifically against you know, radionucleotides, but also you know, against different forms of cancers and things like that. Um, but we'll talk about that later. Um, I, I found this clip that I was looking for. Uh, so, it, it, like Erica mentioned, you know, they have, they have hushed up uh, that accident in uh, in California. And there's been a long, uh, kind of dark, storied history of, uh, of nuclear accidents being hushed up. Um, and we'll hear some of this now from uh, this Michio Kaku interview with, uh, with Art Bell. You'll hear, so this is about uh, almost eight minutes long. Uh, seven minutes, 50 seconds. And uh, you'll hear some beeps uh, throughout the clip, and that just indicates uh, a split, you know, where it goes from one segment to the next. Um, so here's that, and we will be uh, we'll be back with you right after this. Two people were actually blown apart and ki were killed at Los Alamos. Uh, one was uh, killed one month after the bombing of Nagasaki. Uh, they had the plutonium on a tabletop, believe it or not. They had the atomic bombs. Uh, how, much, how much of it, Doctor? Uh, again, about the size of your fist. They had two okay. hemispheres of plutonium. And Harry Daglian, a 26-year-old worker, walked into the room where they had this atomic bomb sitting on a tabletop. And he tripped. He tripped. And his shoulder hit the tungsten carbide, which was surrounding the plutonium. The tungsten carbide fell into this mass, reflected the neutrons, concentrated oh. the neutrons, and critical mass was attained right in his face. So we have to realize that uh, a small atomic bomb went off right in front of Harry Daglian's face. And then just a few months later, believe it or not, um, in 1946, 
uh, Louis Slotin, a physicist, was blown apart in the same way. He had two hemispheres of plutonium on a tabletop. He had an atomic bomb on the tabletop with a screwdriver. Uh, the screwdriver would bring these two hemispheres closer and closer and closer together. A Geiger counter needle would go off scale, and then he would untwist, unscrew the two hemispheres. Uh, this is called tickling the dragon's tail. They considered themselves hot rodders. Uh, they were pushing the laws of physics. Uh, they were making measurements. And when, when Slotin realized that he had turned the screw too many times uh, and the Geiger counter needle went off scale, he lunged forward and with his bare hands, uh, with his bare hands, he separated the two plutonium hemispheres and he took the entire brunt of the atomic bomb in his chest. Oh, my God. And he was, again, hit with about 5,000 rads of radiation. He, too, pretty much disintegrated uh, with enormous burns over his body uh, at the Los Alamos Hospital. You know, the military is quite careless with regards to plutonium. Uh, they often wash large quantities of plutonium waste in pipes, and sometimes you have criticality in the walls of the building. Really? I was shocked at the White Building at Oak Ridge, Tennessee. You yeah. can actually look up the file where critical mass was attained in the wall. Wow. And uh, people walking in and out uh, were hit with a fair amount of radiation as liquid, uh, in and out, went critical and went out of critical, went in and critical, out of critical, over a period of hours. But still in all, people do doing that kind of work are required, are they not, to wear badges that would have reflected the uh, the dose they were getting, wouldn't they? Well, believe it or not, in order to reconstruct the, the dose, uh, they put a donkey in that same room, and they had the donkey uh, be exposed to critical mass from the wall to calculate exactly how much radiation the workers got. Huh. This is how careless. Um, you'd be shocked when you read the files. Well, I mean, like, for example, in, in 1961 in Idaho, uh, there was a worker who removed manually removed the control rod out of the um, SL-1 reactor, the stationary low-power reactor unit one, and the reactor went supercritical right under his feet, and the reactor exploded. I've never heard any of this. Yeah, this is Idaho Falls, Idaho, uh, January 1961. Uh, three workers were blown apart when a reactor went super critical. Forget the meltdown. We're wow. talking about a small bomb going off right under the feet of Mr. John Burns, who was shot through the ceiling. The explosion was so great that the control rod went right through his body and impaled him, his body on the ceiling of the oh reactor. Oh, God. This was kept hush-hush uh, in the 1960s, but Three Mile Island was not our first meltdown. Our first meltdown was Fermi-1, operated by Detroit Edison. Really? Uh, and it was a 2% core melt. 2% uh, of the core melted. I have pictures of the core showing melted, these melted rods of uranium dripping uh, fuel down to the bottom. Uh, what happened was a, it was an ex, in a breeder reactor, which today would be considered criminal if anyone tried to make a commercial breeder reactor. They're very unstable. What happened was a piece of zirconium, a piece of metal about the size of a beer can, uh, became dislodged in the cooling system, jammed the cooling system. The reactor overheated as a consequence and began to melt. And then radiation alarms were sent off. They immediately stopped the chain reaction. And for days, they were wondering, what is the state of a melted core? They had never seen a commercial reactor with a melted core before. And so they simply crossed their fingers. They cr literally crossed their fingers and hoped it wouldn't become supercritical. Uh -huh. It was 20% enriched, highly enriched uranium. Uh, today we use only 3% enriched uranium, by the way. Could, uh, a bomb is 90% enriched. Could it have gone? It might have gone. 
It could have been bad because of two things. One, melting could have started up again, in which case you would have a sodium explosion, which is quite volatile. Sodium will explode uh, on contact with, like, water. Uh, a sodium explosion, which would rip the whole reactor apart, or a small bomb. That is, uh, critical, supercriticality would be attained with melted fuel, and then it would, it would, uh, it would heat up, and then, again, another sodium explosion to rip the reactor apart. And, you know, there were, evacu there were evacuation plans uh, to evacuate large portions of Detroit. Were they? It, it was a sodium explosion. Were they uh, telling the people of Detroit what was going on at the time? They heard nothing. I got the file from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission once years ago, and there was a letter from the union, uh, the United Auto Workers Union, saying that some of the union brothers have heard that there was a massive incident at the reactor. Could you clarify? Yeah. And the answer is also there in the file. The answer is, oh, nothing happened. Now, the greatest nuclear accident of all time before Chernobyl actually took place in Russia uh, under, um, in the 1950s in, in uh, the Ural Mountains. It was the greatest nuclear catastrophe of all time, and it, too, was hushed up. Um, all these, by the way, all these accidents have been hushed up. What uh, happened there? Well, in the area called Kushtin, near the village of Kazli, there was a plutonium dump. Uh, Stalin had all the excess plutonium from the nuclear uh, program dumped into this one site. Uh -huh. And apparently, again, supercriticality was achieved and boiling occurred uh, within the plutonium dump. And an explosion took place which blew the lid, blew the lid right off the container. And uh, plutonium in liquid aerosol form shot into the atmosphere. And by the way, um, England, about the same time, sustained its first big nuclear accident, which was totally hushed up in England. Uh, this was the wind scale, uh, pile number one in the 1950s. Uh, it was actually very much like the Chernobyl accident. It was carbon moderated. Uh, the carbon caught on fire, and you had a uranium carbon fire in the center of a nuclear power plant Wow. in uh, Windscale, England. Uh, they had never seen this before. Uh, a reactor actually in flames. Uh, the workers shot hose water, uh, hose water directly into the core of a nuclear power plant. This is unbelievable. I mean, you have to read the files to believe this. How could... I... <laughs> a huge explosion took place. Gigantic amounts of gas was lofted in the air. I'm sure. And the Queen scientists tracked that radioactive cloud sailing over the English Channel. And they classified the whole thing. Only the Queen of England. She was the only civilian to be aware of this accident. So, there you have it. Um, and now, granted, those are only a few of the accidents that have happened. That's unbelievable. Oh, yeah. God. And we learn about these scientists in school, and they made it seem like Madame Curie was the only one who died from these radiation experiments that she was doing. It was like yeah. people were just dropping dead all over the place, and nobody knew about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's unbelievable. Like, listening to that clip, you really get a, the impression of, of how reckless these uh, scientists were at the beginning. Um, I mean, I don't know if that kind of that kind of thing still goes on at this point, but uh, I don't know if it was just out of ignorance or, or or what the deal was. It's almost like they had this kind of uh, feeling of untouchableness about them, you know, like they can do all these reckless experiments and it's no big deal. And so it's just so irresponsible. 
Maybe they watched too many or read too many Superman comics. They thought they would get special powers by yeah. dealing with this radioactive material. But it seems like they just, I don't know, they have hubris. And on the other hand, they absolutely do not know really what they're doing with these tiny little atoms. And they're splitting them apart and they have no clue. No, it's true. Yeah, I mean, obviously in the early days there wasn't uh a lot of research or perhaps any research about, um, you know, the fact that this radiation would be spread across the planet and that it does not go away. I mean, there are some radioactive particles that have a half-life of, uh, you know, a few seconds, uh, some six months, but a large number of them are for hundreds or even millions of years. Um, but, you know, uranium is, is millions and millions of years. It doesn't go away. Same with plutonium. Um, Wasn't plutonium like 24,000 years half-life or something ridiculous? It's going to be a year for yeah. the rest of the party, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know uh, later in the show we'll play another clip from uh, Helen Caldicott, and she mentions that uh, the, ra- the uranium that has been used in the Middle East uh, during the, uh, the the conflicts that have gone on there, and the column conflicts, invasions, you know, genocide, uh, will be there for 4.5 billion years, and you know that's a, a pretty staggering figure. Um, and to the uh, to the psychology of these guys messing around with uh, this technology, there's a lot of really weird um, psychological aspects to this. I, I had also heard some stories about um, some of the, the scientists who worked on the bombs before they would test the bomb in the desert, they would actually go spend the night with the bomb before it was detonated. Uh, Why? And sleep next to the bomb because they were they were like giving birth to this thing that they had made. Oh my god! Um, oh, that is sick. There's also uh, another in in another Caldecott clip, Helen Caldecott, uh, which I don't have for the show here today, but. She mentions that uh, during the uh, the Cold War, uh, there was a, a U.S. politician who had said, if you take away our nuclear weapons, it's like taking away the family jewels. And the family jewels hmm. is an aphorism for, you know, for male genitalia. You know, so it's like there's this there's this kind of psychological sexual association with having the balls, having the nuclear weapons, you know, like who's bigger... Hmm. Uh, and it's it's a it's a real base uh, impulse, um, you know. Unfortunately, uh, it, uh, it it implies the destruction of the planet. You know, it's not mm-hmm. it's not you guys having a having a fight with each other. So no, that's that is like really insane. I mean, just to 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 look into the psychology of anybody who would kind of hold the mm-hmm. like you know, it's like this sense of power that they, they have the actual ability to completely wipe out life on the planet. It's like, it, it, you know, who, who wants that kind of power? It's just ridiculous. Yeah. Well, and, uh, I mean, you know, of course we haven't had the, uh, the full-scale nuclear winter uh, scenario. We've, we've actually come mm-hmm. very close to it a few times. They say that um, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, we were 10 seconds away. Uh, from the missiles being launched, um, yeah. you know, and of course you hear, uh, as as Kaku talked about some of these accidents, you know, 
that reactor that melted in uh, Detroit, it, you know, fortunately it was only 2% melted, but it could have gone critical and destroyed uh, the entire city. Um, mm-hmm. There were there were other ones. That I didn't want to make the clip too long, but there were some other ones about uh, scientists who wanted to build a breeder reactor in downtown New York, and they were shut down from doing that because at that point they realized how unstable they were. But, um, you know, there are reactors that are very close to populated areas, and uh, I guess that kind of brings us to talking about some of the um, some of the modern incidents uh, that have that have been going on. Uh, of course, everybody's aware of Fukushima. Uh, maybe not everybody's aware of just how dire uh, the situation is, but I'm sure that everybody has heard of it. Um, but there is also... Wasn't Fukushima built on an earthquake fault? I mean, talk about some really stellar planning right there. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. There yeah. are also two... There's two reactors in the United States that are built on earthquake fault. Huh. Yeah. So, and you know, like Einstein says, nuclear uh, the, uh, a nuclear plant is one hell of a way to boil water, uh, which is the yeah. thing about it because that's that's uh, that's what it's for. You know, it's it's not some mis- uh, you know mysterious um, process by which energy just kind of magically comes out of a reactor. They use the extreme heat of the nuclear materials to boil water to use to turn turbine with a steam and generate electricity. So it's basically like yeah. a giant, uh, it's a coal engine powered by nuclear radiation. Which is insane when you think about it. And they talk, you know, that there's all this uh, spin that gets put on nuclear energy about it being a clean uh, means of generating energy. You know, it's so much cleaner than something like coal because you're not burning anything and you don't have all this, you know, soot and stuff going into the atmosphere. But the consequences of it are just so dire that it's just, it's such like a propaganda. It's just so frustrating when, whenever, uh, you know, you hear the, the idea of nuclear power being equated with being a green energy, you know, a, a, a safe environmental, like, I mean, just the waste alone is, is just unbelievable. Um, and what you have to do to that waste to try and, and, and segregate it from the population, from the surrounding area, it's just, it's, it's, it's just crazy. Well, I think, too, Doug, what, what uh, Dr. Caldecott talks about in one of our videos is that radiation, you can't see it, mm-hmm. smell it, or taste it. So unlike coal, where people actually see the soot and whatnot, this is not visible. So it's kind of like that out of sight, out of mind, you know. Mm-hmm. If people yeah. can't see it, then, then they're not going to be concerned about it. Meanwhile, cancer rates are going through the roof. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and people wonder where the cancer epidemic came from. I mean, there are a number of causes. Um, you know, there's there's certain evidence that points to the uh, the polio vaccine as being one of the one of the root causes of that, um, but you know, it, all of this radiation in the environment, I'm sure, is not helping. <laughs> no, it's, so. it's smoking, Jonathan. It's smoking. Don't you know that? Yeah. All cancer oh, can yeah, be blamed sorry. on smoking. I forgot. <laughs> no, nothing to see here. Move along. Move along. Move along. <laughs> yeah. Let's just do 
put some perspective on that, um, there was this professor, Chris Bresby, who was the scientific secretary of the European Committee on Radiation Risk. And he explained in 2009 that the global death yield of the nuclear age to 1992 has been horrifying. So according to their calculations, calculations made by the European Committee on Radiation Risk, there have been up to 2003, 61 million cancer deaths, hmm. uh, including, you know, nearly 2 million fetal deaths. You know, there has been a loss of life quality of 10% in terms of illnesses and aging effects. And the blame for this can be squarely placed at the door of those scientists and administrators who developed and supported the scientific risk models. We talk about who, ICRP, and uh, he, Chris Bresby, he explains that this is that people have to realize that this is a war crime far greater in magnitude than any that has occurred in recorded human history. Just to put some perspective on that. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know they're they're not going to be held accountable for this anytime soon. Uh, and. Again, as Helen Caldicott will mention, and this is in one of the clips that's coming up, but I'll just reiterate uh, that the IAEA, uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, has an agreement with the WHO, with the World Health Organization, that they will not investigate uh, nuclear accidents. So the mm-hmm. WHO has signed off. You know, so there's no and, – and they're, you know, <laughs> as much uh, – kind of ridiculous information has come from them. They are the kind of standard for worldwide health investigation. Uh, they're, you know, they're the only, they're the biggest organization that can actually do anything about that. And, um, of course, they're, they're co-opted. They're just saying all the cancer is due to red meat. And bacon. <laughs> yeah. And smoking. Oh, my God. It's so bad. <laughs> So speaking of uh, talking about some of the modern uh, things that are going on, and this people may not be entirely aware of, um, I had heard about it uh, from just kind of scouring the web uh, about six months after it happened. Um, But in uh, Carlsbad, uh, New Mexico, um, now I'm looking for a date here, Uh, but there was a... um, Let's see. Uh, well, actually, it was last year, February of 2014. Um, this article here says officials are monitoring the levels of airborne radiation at the deep underground facility in southwestern New Mexico, where the government disposes of its low-grade nuclear waste. Uh, it was called the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, WIPP. Uh, the monitoring system detected traces of radiation on the underground levels of the facility. Uh, and the 139 workers above ground at the time of the incident were ordered to remain where they were as a precaution. None of the employees tested positive for radioactive contamination. Um, However, there is a leak of nuclear waste that's going on there. Uh, Now, of course, they say that the leak was not significant, but as we've heard, uh, even the major, major accidents are hushed up, so, you know, of course, they're going to try to... uh, to dampen the the effect of this in the media. Um, <clears throat> but what happened was uh, the the waste uh, is uh, plut- plutonium-contaminated waste uh, from Los Alamos, 
is stored in a salt mine, and the uh, part of the mine collapsed uh, and cracked open one of the barrels. Um, so it's basically it was just sitting there wide open, uh, leaking out. And um, I unfortunately, I don't have a reference for this. If I find it, I will bring it up. But I remember reading at the time of this that uh, within 100 square miles, uh, hospitals were giving CAT scans uh, to patients who came in and requested them um, because of this radiation contamination. Um, which, again, is, is slightly and sadly ironic, too, because CAT scans are, are radiation in and of themselves, um, and you don't want to get one unless you absolutely need to. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, and there's also in uh, St. Louis, uh, there's an underground fire that is kind of creeping, and those exist, like, all over the place, uh, but this particular one is creeping towards uh, an underground nuclear waste dump uh, as well, and there's a chance that it could breach uh, and set that waste on fire. Um, I mean, this is happening all over the place. You know, it's just not like isolated things that happened in the in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, so that Carlsbad, New Mexico one, is that the same one where there was a barrel that was leaking because it had organic cat litter in it instead of non-organic cat yeah. litter? Yes, yeah. They, they suspect that might be the case, yeah. It, I, I read somewhere that it was kind of a comedy of errors, too, if you can call this kind of thing a comedy. Um, but it, it had to do with, like, there was there was that combined with the fact that the ventilation system was malfunctioning as well, um, and that the filter that was supposed to be filtering out the, uh, the radiation actually wasn't. Um, so, yeah, just, again, just complete recklessness. And, you know, you can blame it on budgets or, or whatever the case may be, but... Uh, you really shouldn't feel safe about, you know, how the authorities are handling these waste products. Well, and that's the dark unspoken truth of nuclear power, uh, you know, is that it produces, you know, they, like you said, Doug, they say it's clean. Uh, and it may be clean for a time, um, you know, while it's operating safely without breach, without meltdown or any criticality. Uh, but mm. they end up with a lot of... Um, active nuclear waste uh, that is still putting off radiation that has to be contained. It has to be buried somewhere. It has to be monitored. Um, and they have to essentially cross their fingers and hope uh, that it stays where it is, you know, for thousands of years. Yeah. Another thing that came out in this whole Carlsbad thing I was reading about, uh, they were saying that the plant was already behind by two years in processing uh, nuclear waste material. So there's a backlog of two years for them to take waste from nuclear power plants and, uh, you know, contain it in a safe manner. Um, and they're all concerned because this, this incident has made them uh, have to shut down the plant. I can't remember how long they have to shut it down for, like 18 months or something like that. Um, and so they're, they're concerned that they're not going to be able to meet their quotas for, um, for containing waste. So just, you just hear things like that. It's like, how could anybody call this, this uh, a clean energy system? It's just ridiculous. And that makes me ask, like, if there's a two-year backlog, what? where's the waste sitting at now? Where is it? Good question. Sitting on a trunk somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and this stuff has to be moved, uh, you know, so it's obviously mm -hmm. moved uh, through uh, through the United States on uh, either in trucks or on railways. Um, and, of course, accidents happen all over the place. So, you know, 
or well, and I was going to say, fortunately, that hasn't happened yet, but we may not know. You know, yeah, things like that. Happened, yeah. there, may have, there may have been spills that nobody is even aware of. Yeah. Well, yeah, like the article we started out with, you know, it took 70 years for them to uh, come out about this uh, Santa Susa field lab experiment gone wrong, you know? Yeah. It takes one of the workers being kind of at the end of his life and feeling a guilty conscience to try to, to actually expose this. Um, Erica, when we were talking before, you said you had a little bit of data about Fukushima that you wanted to share. Would you mind going over that for a little bit? Yeah, no problem. So um, for our listeners, you know, Fukushima happened in March 2011. There was actually uh, six nuclear reactors and according to Dr. Haldun Caldicott, uh, Japan is many times worse than Chernobyl. Hmm. And so there was two articles that just had some stats. Um, one is Fukushima radiation producing cancer clusters in children at more than 50 times that of the normal population. And this was carried back in October of 2015 by the Daily Sheeple. And... Um, this was actually on NPR, uh, National Propaganda, I mean, Public Radio. <laughs> and um, they were talking about children developing thyroid cancer at an elevated rate. Fukushima Health surveyed more than 150,000 children, and they've had up to 25 suspicious or malignant causes of thyroid cancer. Thyroid cancer can be caused by radioactive iodine, and children are particularly susceptible because their thyroids are rapidly growing. A 35% spike in infant mortality rate in the northwestern cities um, since the accident. And more than 2,000 people have died during the evacuations, and another 5,000 are expected to die from future cancers. There's also an increased suicide rate and mental health consequences. Uh, also a drop in the number of live births. And then a second article called The Legacy of Fukushima, Thousands Dead Since Evacuation with Suicide and Cancer Rates on the Rise. And this was carried by the ecologist. Um, they talk about the health toll from uh, Fukushima nuclear disaster is horrendous. And at minimum, over 160,000 people were evacuated, most of them permanently. Many cases of post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and anxiety disorders are arising from the evacuations. About 12,000 workers were exposed to high levels of radiation, some up to 250 MSV. I'm not really sure what that stands for. Microsieverts or yeah. something like that? Um, an estimated 5,000 fatal cancers from radiation in the future, plus similar unquantified quantified numbers of radiogenic strokes, um, cardiovascular disease, and hereditary disease. Uh, Between 2011 and 2015, about 2,000 deaths from radiation-related evacuations due to ill health and suicides, uh, yet unqualified number of thyroid cancers, and again, an increased mortality rate in 2012 and a, a decreased number of live births in 2011. And then they just mentioned two non-health effects included 8% of Japan, about 30,000 square kilometers, including parts of Tokyo, 
are contaminated by radioactivity and the economic losses estimated anywhere between 300 and 500 billion. Mm. Oh. Yeah, that's some and and you know they're they're kind of like what we've been discussing in the show, it's not discussed. It's kind of poo-pooed, put to the side. There was an interesting mm. quote by um a Kyoto University Professor Hiroki Kyoti, and he basically said the clock cannot be turned back. We live in a contaminated world. Yeah. Okay. And it was amazing all the uh, the propaganda that was coming out at the time, too, of, of Fukushima. Like all this, these different articles you would see where they're like, oh, you know, there's nothing to worry about. Uh, you know, don't. Don't worry about it. You can still eat uh, fish. You can still, you know, go about your life as as, a, as if it was normal. Like the radiation reaching California is not that bad. When it's like, you know, it, it just it's it's such propaganda. Like if if you look at anybody who's really looking into the situation and read some of the articles about what's actually happening, it's it, it is extremely alarming. And uh, you know, the the whole like nothing to see here, folks. Just go back to sleep. It, it's 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 extremely frustrating. Yeah, I mean, when that article came out about the Fukushima radiation producing cancer clusters in children, basically the author said a tightly controlled state media has been actively countering the report, unleashing other experts who are claiming that the study is not reliable and is making mm. things not supported by evidence. Mm. Yeah, and I think this is something that, um, and we'll touch on this a little bit later too, that we don't want to simply uh, fearmonger, you know, by talking about this topic. Um, we kind of want to we want to bring it up as something to face um, as a fact that people need to know about and not freak out about. Um, you know, it, it certainly is easy, and I've had my moments too where, you know, I'll freak out for a little while just thinking, oh, my God, the world is done for. <laughs> But, uh, you know, it, it can go that way, but, you know, then you're not going to operate or do anything useful in your life. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, I think it's necessary to look at some of this dark information, really realize what the situation is, and, and use that to galvanize uh, your actions and your intent. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Um, it's very easy to get kind of overwhelmed by this information. Um, you know, and I can I can understand why people will like kind of cling on to these sort of life preservers from, that are tossed out by the uh, the powers that be in the mainstream media to to kind of don't worry about it, just go about your life because it, it can be so overwhelming and you can get very depressed by uh, by looking into this darkness. But uh, mm-hmm. I think you're you're very right, Jonathan. That you know you, you you need to use this sort of information as a means of kind of galvanizing, as you said, and you know uh, using the information to and the knowledge to 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 kind of um, build yourself up more than become overwhelmed by it. Um, it can be mm-hmm. just a, a huge tidal wave that can send you into a negative dark spin. But uh, you know it, it should actually be be kind of um, motivating you to action in some way. Yeah, even if it's one step at a time, you know, it's better than mm-hmm. nothing that they are relying on us to conform, to just like, you know, believe their lives. And it's just one little step that it's a huge thing to do. 
Yeah. Well, and it also yeah. gives you perspective about, you know, the things that you worry about in your day-to-day life, you know. <laughs> mm. Oh, I can't buy that Christmas present for my friend. It's like, really, that's small. <laughs> yeah. And it's also really, um, it's interesting, uh, several years ago, there was a uh, really good video created. It's called the Time-Lapse Map of Every Nuclear Explosion Since 1945. Mm -hmm. Uh, It came out in 2011 on YouTube, and it was actually a best of the web on Signs of the Times. This Japanese artist, Isio Hashimoto, created a beautiful, undeniably scary time-lapse map of the 2,053 nuclear explosions which have taken place between 1945 and 1998, beginning with the Manhattan Project Trinity test near Los Alamos and concluding concluding with the uh, Pakistan's nuclear test in May of 1998. He began the project in 2003, and he created it with the goal of showing the fear and folly of nuclear weapons. So people are you know, moved by this material in such a way that they want to get the information out there and as a way to to really show and, and, and for people to see how overwhelming this can be and how the buildup happens. And for those who want to watch the video, it's about 14 minutes long and you can skip to like the 1960s and see, I mean, all over the screen, you just see blurps of, of all yeah. the stuff going on. You know, I mean... And and as you said, it's not something so much to be afraid of, but just having the knowledge that it's out there. And, and mm-hmm. then when you hear that smoking causes cancer, eating bacon, it kind of puts things <laughs> into a different perspective. So, yeah. yeah. Now, one thing I was struck by by watching that video is is how much of, like, just a pissing contest it seems. Like, you know, the, the U.S. is doing all their nuclear explosions and then Russia is, like, countering with all their nuclear explosions. It's kind of like, well, we're doing lots of nuclear explosions. Oh, yeah, well, we're doing lots of big nuclear explosions, too. And then France like, yeah, we do, we're doing it, too. And Britain is like, yeah, us, too. Like, look, we, we are, we're doing – we're in on the action, too. It, like, it, it, it just the buildup, it just it, – it kind of blows my mind. And, like, all these different countries, like, racing to get this, this ability to, to cause these – detrimental explosions on the face of the planet. It just, it's so, it just makes me so mad watching it. Well, it's like Jonathan mentioned, it's a pissing contest. Mm-hmm. You've got the mm-hmm. bigger balls, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, the the race for developing more and more deadly weapons is uh, has a very clear and unambiguous goal of uh, killing people, you know, and uh, you can get into the whole debate as to whether or not some wars are justified and others are not. Um, you know, there's self-defense and there's aggression. Uh, there are all these different points about it. Um, you know, but we're not talking about, you know, a, a, a village or a city defending themselves against an invasion, you know, or even a country defending themselves. Uh, we're talking about the potential destruction of the entire planet. Uh, and, you know, it's that mad mutually assured destruction scenario um, which is just uh, it's insane I mean you know there is a certain cold logic to it like yeah if you try to destroy me I'll destroy you and we'll all be gone Uh, but that's really Mm -hmm. psychotic that's really psychotic thinking I mean you know (laughs) 
I don't even know if it's I It's completely pathological. It. Yeah. Yeah, complete, completely pathological. I think we can safely say um, that, you know, any there there is no such thing as a justified use of a nuclear weapon. Absolutely none. Like there, there is, there is no situation that could be called for where it, it could be like, yeah, okay, that that nuclear uh, um, missile launch was uh, it was justified. No way. There is absolutely no situation where that could, where you could possibly justify that. Yeah. Well, there's there's a a small portion of uh, psychopathic mad scientists out there who just get off on death and destruction, and that's just the way it is. I mean, if it wasn't nuclear power, it would be some other kind of power or something else that they could do. Mm. I mean, they just get off on death and destruction. And, I mean, there's pretty much nothing that we can do about it. That's Mm. just the way their minds work, which is sad in itself, but it's a fact. We can spread information. That's what we can do about it. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, I think also be careful not, you know, to spread information and to not cram it down people's throats. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like I, I could very easily just go out on the street and walk up to people and, and just be like, we're screwed, you know, and just start like listing off all these things. Um, but, you know, that's that's not the way to do it. And we've talked about this on previous shows, too, like, uh, you know, wait for opportunity to arise, spread information where you can. Um, you know, use social media when you can, when you can, and use personal conversations uh, when you can. Uh, but you, you know, you also need to retain your ability um, to have discourse with people. Um, and just like this topic we're talking about today, I mean, if you picked any one person who didn't know any of this information and just started listing off all of these factors as to how much radiation there is in the environment, you can cause somebody to go into apoplectic shock, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, you know, we need to spread information with uh, consciousness about, you know, the effects that it's going to have. Uh, and that's not to say that, like, I, I want to be very clear that I'm not agreeing with hushing up any of these accidents, I think that this, all this stuff should be public information. Um, mm-hmm. But we are at a point now where people's uh, ability to deal with negative information is so fragile. Um, you know, it's just like we see yeah. in the news day to day. You see a negative event and then you see puppies. And so you're made to feel better. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think it really comes down to a, a choice, right? Like you, you don't want to bypass somebody's ability to choose whether or not they wish to be informed or ignorant on this subject. So forcing information on people is, is kind of like an abridgment of their free will. Some people want to remain in the dark and, you know, that's their right. But if you put the information out there in such a way that, uh, you know, somebody is choosing whether or not they want to expose themselves to it. So social media is a good a good example, if you like post uh, things on your Facebook page or something like that, then the people have, you know, they read the headline and they have a choice whether or not they want to pursue that or not. Um, whereas if you're kind of cornering somebody at a party or something like that and like laying all this information <laughs> on them, it's, it's, it really is kind of an abridgment of their free will. You know, it, it's, you, you can't make the decision for them as to whether or not they should be an informed individual. They have to make that decision themselves. Yep. And then you get labeled, you know, oh, here comes Debbie Downer with all those stats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
I had an interesting experience a couple of years ago with a uh, a sushi chef uh, in California. I was there, and uh, my girlfriend and I ate at a, uh, a, a restaurant, and um, we were looking on the menu, and all of the sushi that they had was uh, river caught fish, inland river caught fish. And so we were like, okay, well, we'll try it. And we ended up uh, actually by, kind of by chance outside uh, having a cigarette later talking to the chef himself who was on his way out and was outside um, and mentioned uh, Fukushima. And he went off uh, in a, you know, mm-hmm. not against me, but in, in kind of a supportive way. And he was like, yeah, I will never, ever, ever serve a fish from the Pacific Ocean again in my life. Wow. Uh, because, he, because he was aware of the situation, you know, that was going on. Um, and he was talking about how that was like the little part that he could do. He's like, this is my livelihood. So for now, you know, I got to keep doing it, but at least I can do that. Mm. So. Wow. And I guess through that, he was kind of able to spread his information too. If anybody's kind of like, well, why are you serving all this fish, like this river kai fish? If, then that's an opportunity for him to kind of like uh, maybe inform somebody who might actually be interested in the information. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of the Fukushima apologists will say, well, it doesn't matter that, you know, the nuclear runoff is going into the ocean. The ocean is so vast and so large, it all gets diluted. But they don't think about, you know, how the algae, they soak up all the radiation and the crustaceans and the little fish and the big fish, and it just mm-hmm. lives on and on and on. It doesn't matter how large the ocean is. No, it really doesn't. I mean, that stuff does bioaccumulate, like you're saying, like mm-hmm. up the food chain. And it, it's also like the, the point needs to be made that there, there was actually an article um, on uh, SOT in uh, March of 2011 from the Physicians for Social Responsibility. And the title was uh, uh, Radioactivity in Food. There is no safe level of radionucleotide exposure, whether from food, water, or other sources, period. So it's like, you know, it, it doesn't matter how diluted it is. If you, you know, play the lottery and you get exposed to these radionucleotides, and somebody will, then, you know, then suddenly you're the one who's going to develop cancer. So, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's just the, the whole dilution situation. I mean, I, re- I remember reading one article where they're talking about how if you take a machine gun and spray it into a crowd, you know, some of those people are going to get hit. And it's like you can, it's kind of like, you know, pulling the wool over someone's eyes to say, oh, well, your chances are pretty slim. Well, it doesn't matter. You know, you're in a crowd that's being fired upon by a machine gun. You might be one of those people. And even if you're not, somebody else is. So the, the, that whole argument about dilution is just, it, it's completely irrelevant. And from one perspective, the Fukushima disaster was actually worse because seed products, fresh ocean fish, algae, you know, it is really very important from a nutritional perspective. From an evolutionary perspective, we have grains, you know, thanks to fatty acids in fish and iodine in algae. So if Fukushima polluted all our resources of sea products, you know, and algae, we really, you know, we really in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then what can you really do about it? I mean, um, we lived in Hawaii uh, during the Fukushima disaster, and I remember reading the news about California and Canada and 
it's in the milk, it's in like, oh my gosh, we've already been exposed for, you know, years Mm -hmm. before. And, you know, people are saying, oh, you're not going to go swimming in the water, right? Because it's in the water. And, you know, this was after I had watched that time-lapse map of every nuclear explosion since 1945. And Mm -hmm. it's like, what can you really do, you know? I mean, were you going to stay in your underground bomb shelter for the rest of Mm -hmm. all time? You know, and and um, and it's uh, Dr. Heldon Caldicott talks about, and maybe it will be, even be in the video. It's like it could be five years, it could be ten years, it could be thirty years before you're going to start seeing the effects of these. And and mm-hmm. as everyone shared, it just depends on the person and and their diet and how they're living their life. But you can't hide from it. Yes, mm-hmm. is my point. Mm-hmm. It's just it's all around you and, and having the awareness about it to take care of your health is something that you can do yeah. instead of compounding. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think um, from a yes, I'm going to say Oh, that. go ahead, Gabby. No, I was just going to say that uh, I think from the mainstream medicine perspective, the most well-recognized um, disaster and health effects the Chernobyl disaster, and uh, in 2009, um, Eastern European doctors managed to publish their book, their research on Chernobyl, on the annals of the New York Academy, and uh, the publication is called Chernobyl Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment. They basically did a very good job researching all the effects it's all what we've been covering in the show um, so far. It's just that, you know, it is a scientific publication and uh, has very interesting data, and it is recognized, at least in scientific circles. It's just interesting how they manipulate the public awareness, where most mm-hmm. people don't know about these publications and, you know, how well documented they are. You know, it's all, it is all scientific. It's not like out there, you know, conspiracy theory or anything like mm-hmm. that, you know. It is really, literally very bad, you know. And actually, the effects of Chernobyl were seen after 10 years, and it is known that it's going to get worse as, you know, the years go by because this stuff, you know, just cycles in the environment, and we get it mostly through the food that we eat, you know. And uh, so, yeah, that's... Uh, um, if you guys want to read like a review of the of the book and the research, I'm gonna post the link to the chat. You know, it's an article that was published on thought in 2011 called "The Toxifier Die: Natural Radiation Protection Therapies for Coping with the Fallout of the Fukushima Nuclear Meltdown." But it's really a review of the Chernobyl, you know, research. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, Caldecott mentions that book as well, um, and uh, mm-hmm. she also mentioned that the the fact that uh, before that book had come out, uh, there was no effort uh, by the IEA or anybody else to look into the actual Russian data about Chernobyl, and that mm-hmm. was a big reason why it didn't get get widespread was because it was all in, in Russian and nobody bothered to to translate it and spread it to the rest of the world. So the Russians have been aware of this for some time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know the the, the bioaccumulation um, 
the silent effects of radiation are something that need to be taken into account when you're thinking about this because it can seem like, well, I don't see any negative effects from it, and I'm not like one of those scientists in the in the 40s who got, you know, super critical release right in my face and melted in 48 hours. You know, that, that, that doesn't happen to you when you get a little piece of plutonium or strontium or cesium or something like that into your body. Um, uh, Deldicott, who we're, who we're referencing a lot here, and uh, just as a quick aside, I would recommend our listeners, uh, if you want to look into this more, uh, go search on YouTube for Helen Caldicott. It's uh, C-A-L-D-I-C-O-T-T. And she has a lot of videos where she talks about the medical implications of, of the radiation in our environment. Um, but mm-hmm. she mentioned that uh, Three Mile Island actually happened quite near to a, uh, a Hershey um, a dairy yeah. farm where they, they take milk from the, the cows to, to make their chocolate. And uh, they were actually at the time concerned about the radiation in the milk, and so they freeze-dried all of the milk, um, and supposedly, according to some process, and I'm not intimately familiar with this, uh, you know, allowed time for the radiation to, to uh, escape from the freeze-dried milk. Um, mm-hmm. However, the, that radiation got, was also on the ground and in the plants that the cows were eating, and so it's not like they can just get rid of it. It bioaccumulated. Um, mm-hmm. into their systems and then, you know, it, into the uh, the milk and then further into the products that were made from that milk. And uh, she mentioned at one point that, you know, like someday down the road, um, you know, you feel a lump in your breast and you don't realize that it was from a, from a molecule of strontium-90 that was in a piece of Hershey's chocolate that you ate 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's... That's another, that's another way that this can really cause kind of irrational uh, fear um, about mm-hmm. this topic because when you really start thinking about all the possibilities, I mean, I've eaten some crap in my life and I'm like, oh, man, you know, like, I don't know where Among it Among them, Hershey's Kisses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and so it's a, it's a possibility for everyone. So you really, um, like Erica said, it, it, it can help you to kind of make your attention more immediate you know, um, you know, we we have our lives right now. Um, none of us know how long we have anyway. Uh, you know, accidents happen, car accidents. You know, all these things happen. So uh, it's I think that it should galvanize us to uh, to take the moment really and then you know carpe diem um, and and use the time that we have to to do good in the world. Mm-hmm. So um, and also to put another. Yeah, go ahead, Gabby, yeah. Just to put another perspective, at least from the Chernobyl research, you know, there were lots of diseases that we now know as fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, you know, and all these, you know, weird diseases that never existed before. And um, the researchers, the Russian researchers say that basically it enriched the medical, you know, vocabulary after Chernobyl, and uh, it is, uh, they also report from autopsies made from that time, you know, how the radionuclides incorporate in our bodies, but especially they get concentrated in the glands, like the thyroid glands, the adrenal glands, the pancreas, the thymus, the spleen, the liver, also the heart and the muscles. 
And uh, that is interesting because a lot of these diseases, uh, they come from like failure of glands of uh, imbalances in hormones, like adrenal fatigue, you know, um, yeah, and fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome. And also another thing that most people ignore is that radiation uh, intensifies infectious and parasitic diseases like viral hepatitis, respiratory viruses, but also meningitis, you know, all kinds of diseases. So one question to what point, you know, all these, you know, increasing epidemic, uh, you know, diseases like Lyme disease and all these diseases that were plagued nowadays, it's not only earth changes, but also like accumulation of radionuclates, you know, in the environment, which is changing the whole flora and fauna of the earth, basically. Yeah. Yeah, that's one thing that doesn't really get looked at, you know, is is what are the consequences? You know, people will look at the the um, the consequences of like acute exposures. You know, what is the immediate effect of being exposed to this sort of radiation? But they don't tend to look very much at the long term type consequences. And I, I think, like you were saying, Gabby, a lot of these um, you know chronic conditions that people kind of develop. Um, might have their root causes in some of this radiation exposure. Um, and, you know, it, that's the kind of thing that you'll you'll never really prove, you know. You'll never really find out for sure that that's, that's what kind of was at the root of these things. So it's just, it, it's very silent in that way. It's kind of devious, you know. Well, it's interesting, too, because, um, you know, America in particular has been... Uh, testing with experiments radiation on humans you know um back in 2011 there was an article on SOT, uh, best of the web america's history of chemical weapon experiments uh, against its own people over 4,000 radiation experiments um, poisoned hundreds of thousands of its citizens and basically this is carried by uh, New Dawn magazine, and only recently, I mean, this is 2011, but um, top secret documents were released that detailed uh, the unethical and inhumane radiation studies conducted during the Cold War years from 1944 to 1974. Some of the classified uh, government experiments included exposing more than 100 Alaskan villagers to radioactive iodine. That happened in mm -hmm. the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Feeding 49 mm -hmm. retarded and institutionalized teenagers uh, radioactive iron and calcium in their cereal. That Jesus. went on from 1946 to 1954. In the late 40s, um, exposing over 800 pregnant women to radioactive iron to determine the effect on the fetus. Mm -hmm. uh, injecting newborns with radioactive iodine administrating radioactive material to psychiatric patients in San Francisco and prisoners in San Quentin. Mm -hmm. Radiating their testicles, I hear. Yes. Yeah. Mm. And exposing almost 200 cancer patients to high levels of radiation from cesium and cobalt. Uh, that test was finally stopped by the Atomic Energy Commission in 1974. Mm. So in 1995, the Energy Department admitted to over 430 radiation experiments conducted, and um, 
by then over 16,000 people were radiated, some of who did not even know the health risks or were not even giving consent, you know? So the experiments were designed to help atomic scientists understand the human hazards of nuclear war and radiation uh, fallout. These experiments were all stamped secret and allowed to take place under the uh, you know, uh, protecting national security shtick. You know? Why were they secret if they were so helpful to advancing <laughs> knowledge about what happens to uh, human beings under radiation? And again, it just comes back to people who get off on torturing people and like sickening people and like seeing people suffer. Like, I can see maybe if you did one or two, after one or two, that kind of gives you what you want to know. But 400 some experiments? Come on. <laughs> Yeah. And you know, animal experiments. (laughs) I was just going to say that, like, you know, animal experiments on these kinds of things are bad enough, you know, like torturing animals. But these these people are are torturing human beings. Like, oh, it's just, yeah. Yeah. And all in the name of national security. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that kind of leads me into this, uh, this clip. No, we've been talking about uh, Helen Caldicott here on the show, and uh, I have a clip from her which is about a little over five minutes long. Uh, and again, like the first one, you'll hear some beeps that just indicates the transition. Um, but uh, this is her just kind of talking about the effects of radiation and the use of uh, radiation in, in war, uh, its effects on children, and kind of what's happening uh, at the current moment. So, um as I said at the beginning, I mean, we could talk about this for many hours, so this is really condensed, um, but I believe this gives a, some good insight into the uh, the issues that are going on, and uh, we'll be back right after this uh, clip. The, uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency, which controls nuclear power and supports it around the world, says that only 4,000 people died because of Chernobyl. The World Health Organization has an unholy alliance with the IAEA, an agreement signed in 57 saying that WHO can't investigate any atomic accidents uh, unless the IAEA says so. So the WHO has never investigated Chernobyl, didn't investigate Three Mile Island, and it's not investigating uh, Fukushima, which is really more than medically irresponsible. And it was Timothy Mc. Timothy uh, Musso, who got the New York Academy to translate 5,000 articles written in Russian in the peer-reviewed literature, epidemiologists, physicians and the like, into English for the first time because the IAEA had never even looked at Russian articles. They hadn't even studied the people. So this book is imperative reading and it shows that by now, 25 years post-Chernobyl, over a million people have died. And that they've died of various things. There are homes full of the most severely deformed children. And what radiation does to a developing embryo in the first trimester is it can kill a cell that's going to form the left half of the brain or the right arm like thalidomide did. And that's called teratogenesis. A genetically chromosomally normal fetus is damaged by radiation and we have never seen in the history of paediatrics such children and there's a photograph here of them and and it's really tragic. Um, There's a film called Chernobyl Heart which documents and you can download it on the internet 
what's happening to these children. Children are ageing prematurely. They're getting diseases that old people get. There's a very high incidence of cataracts induced by radiation. Um, children are getting heart disease because cesium-137 concentrates in the heart muscle and they're dying of heart disease. Um, there's a high incidence of diabetes because cesium-137 concentrates in the endocrine glands including the pancreas. Um, and of course there's a very high incidence of cancer and leukaemia. So what you need to know is children are 20 times more radiosensitive than adults. Little girls are twice as sensitive as little boys. We don't know why. Fetuses are thousands of times more radiosensitive. One X-ray to the pregnant abdomen doubles the incidence of leukaemia in that baby. Radiation is cumulative. Each dose you get adds to your risk of getting cancer. No dose is safe. Do not have an unnecessary X-ray. Do not have your teeth X-rayed every year. You don't need it and it's really criminal to x-ray you every year. Um, my ex-husband was a radiologist. They make a lot of money. Don't walk through those x-ray machines in the airports. They're criminal, and I have to call the president of the AMA and tell him or her that they have to be banned because they're irradiating fetuses and little children, and old people are very sensitive to radiation, as are immunosuppressed patients. So it's very serious. Don't have CAT scans unless you absolutely require one. Don't allow, you know, don't, doctors are not gods. And so question us. If they say you need an X-ray, say why and how. And be tough with your doctor. Now, PSR, Physicians for Social Responsibility, did a study whereby they dropped three hydrogen bombs on two uranium facilities because they're buried so deeply and you can't destroy them just with conventional weapons at Nahans and Isfahan, and released so much radiation, uranium, which is causing cancers in Basra now and in Fallujah, uh, and gross birth deformities, and the radiation from the nuclear weapons produced so much fallout that within 48 hours, 2.6 million people died, all the way over to Afghanistan, India and Pakistan, and Israel would get it too. Yet those medical consequences are never discussed. Isn't that interesting? They talk about, you know, they've got them and we haven't, or what about this and that. They don't ever talk about what happens during war. Uranium's pretty poisonous. America used it in Fallujah and Baghdad and in Fallujah. 80% of the babies being born are grossly deformed. They're being born without brains single eyes, no arms. The doctors have told the women to stop having babies. The incidence of childhood cancer has gone up about 12 times. This is genocide. It's a nuclear war being conducted in Iraq. But uranium that they're using lasts for more than 4.5 billion years. So we're contaminating the cradle of civilization, the coalition of the willing. So that's Helen Caldicott, and of course that was just a small sampling of what she talks about. But you know, it's it's pretty incredible. And just to clarify, because it might not have been totally clear, the PSR study that she mentioned, where 2.6 million people died in 48 hours, that was a study that that didn't actually happen. They studied what what would be the effect if um, if bombs were dropped on these uranium facilities. Um, however, as she pointed out. Um, 
you know, these statistics are not generally released and people don't understand. You know, it doesn't take uh, a giant uh, nuclear bomb to irradiate a country. It, it, it basically takes the destruction of one or two nuclear facilities. Um, mm-hmm. So, and it, of course, that's not to... Uh, to denigrate what's actually happening. As she said, you know, in, in Iraq, the incidence of child cancer have gone up 12 times, so that's 1,200%, um, mm-hmm. which is incredible. I mean, it, it really is... No, uh, yeah, I, oh, I think ahead. we know that that, that radioactivity released from Chernobyl power plant was hundreds of times higher than that from the Hiroshima atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there was more yet than Chernobyl was released at uh, at Fukushima. So, yeah, and I can only think that. An, uh, sorry, go ahead, Jonathan. Oh, I, I was just going to say there's another statistic um, referring back to where Michio Kaku talked about that accident that happened in the Ural Mountains in Russia, that liquid aerosolized plutonium was sprayed into the atmosphere. Um, in another Helen Caldicott video, she mentions that uh, it would take one pound of plutonium, which is 2.2 kilograms, uh, to give cancer to every single person on the planet. Um, huh. So, it, you know, and each uh, nuclear warhead contains something like 200 kilograms of plutonium. Um and so, you know, plutonium is nothing to mess around with, and there has been tons of it released into the uh, into the atmosphere and into the water. Um, there was another statistic she gave, uh, which I tried really hard to find, but I couldn't find it. But I clearly remember her saying that, uh, according to her own research, she postulates that every male in the northern hemisphere has one, at least one molecule of plutonium in their testicles because of the way it travels uh. through the body. So, yeah. you know, it's 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 one of those inescapable things, you know, and it's uh, like we've been talking about, you know, you may not want to know about it, and if you don't, then that's your choice, um, you know, but if you're looking to know as much as you can about the environment around you, this is a big part of it. Yeah. And we'll explain the, the decrease in sperm, you know, count of, of gentlemen nowadays, infertility, and, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the, the rise in, uh, we, I talked about this in a previous show, but, you know, the largest cancer in children now is leukemia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as she said, you know, the children are hypersensitive and fetuses even more so, um, you know, and forget, you know, not alone x-rays at the, the hospital, uh, which are done kind of regularly, Um people to travel, you know, and going through the TSA uh, screeners, you're getting small doses of radiation there. And the the size of the dose, uh, of course, it, it matters when you consider how quickly you're going to die, but it doesn't matter um, when you consider the, the accumulation in your body. So every time you get that dose, um, you know, your risk is increased and even more so for children. Yeah. So, and and I mean, it, would, as hard as it is to listen to her speak and read her material, you know, basically the, the take-home message is she, she believes that this, this is the greatest public health hazard the world has ever witnessed, apart mm-hmm. from the threat yeah. every day of nuclear war. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's something that begs to not be uh, ignored, um, something that we should discuss. You know, when we were talking about things that you can do, I mean, you know, like she said in the uh, in that clip there, when you're <clears throat> at your doctor's, you know, be frank with them and uh, be kind of tough with them. And if they say, well, we're just going to give you an x-ray, you know, say, is that really necessary? Do I really need one? Do I really need a CAT scan? And there are cases where you do, um, but, you know, these regular... Um, doses of radiation that people are getting uh, oftentimes are not needed. Um, diagnoses can be done without them. Uh, and the same mm-hmm. in, the, uh, in the airports, you know, if you're going through the airport, they do have the, the opt-out uh, option uh, for the scanners. Now, you might, it might be kind of a pain, uh, and, you, you know, you might get harassed or get some looks or something like that, but, you know, it, that's a small price to pay for, for avoiding a radiation dose. Yeah, I'd rather get felt up than get irradiated. I always opt out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I have opted out in the past, and it really wasn't that big a deal. Just a pat down. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't, I didn't feel violated or anything like that. And the funny thing was that I was just kind of proceeding through um, the security um, section, and they they say, okay, go go here and put your feet on the uh, on the the stencils on the on the the floor there. And it kind of took me a second to realize what was actually going on. And I was like, wait a minute, is this, is this the, the, uh, the, the body scanner? And they're like, yes. And I was like, no, I, I don't want to do this. I, I'm, I'm opting out. So, and it wasn't, it wasn't that big a deal. I had to wait like 10 minutes before somebody came to pat me down. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was, it was fine. I, wasn't, I know there are incidents where people feel kind of violated from it or something, but my experience was not, uh, not that big a deal. And I would much rather have that, like you said, Tiff, than get myself irradiated. Yeah, every time I opt out, they don't even ask me why. No. They just do it. Yeah. You just start stating the stats. Yeah. I'm not going to tell them why, but they don't act, so I don't say anything. I just put my arms up and get it done and move on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm much rather than travel. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Go by car. Well, let's uh, let's talk for a few minutes about the uh, the response of the powers that be uh, to this kind of thing. You know, um, as we've seen and uh, and heard, um, you know, the nuclear accidents are hushed up. A lot of the information, especially about Fukushima, has been downplayed. Um, there's an article here uh, on SOT that is from the Ecologist. Uh, it says, "Is radiation good for you?" The U.S. N- Nuclear Regulatory Commission says yes. Um, it says here, the well-founded idea that nuclear radiation is dangerous even at the lowest levels is under attack, writes Carl Grossman. Uh, three determined nuclear enthusiasts have filed petitions to the NRC calling on it to apply the doctrine of radiation hormesis, that low levels of radiation actually stimulate the immune system and promote better health. Um, it's the, if implemented, the hormesis model would result in needless death and misery, says Michael Marriott, NIRS president. Uh, that is, I don't see the acronym for the It's oh. the Nuclear Information and Resource Service based in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so it says emergency planning zones would be significantly reduced or abolished entirely. Instead of being forced to spend money to limit radiation releases, nuclear utilities could pocket greater profits. In addition, adoption of the radiation model by the NRC would throw the entire government's radiation protection rules into disarray 
since other agencies like the EPA also rely on that model. Um, so it's very interesting that this is a this is a proposed change at the policy level of the government, uh, you know, to say we need more, not less, radiation. Uh, and I just, it, it's kind of mind, it's not entirely mind blowing, uh, but it is a little bit mind blowing. <laughs> it's disturbing. Yeah. yeah, very much so. It's very yeah, like, guys. Sorry, go on, Erica. Oh, I was just going to say they reported in Nuclear News that in this same article that no protective measure or public safety warnings would be considered necessary. Cleanup measures could be sharply reduced. In a sense, this would legalize what the government is already doing, failing to protect the public and promoting nuclear radiation. Yeah. Let's bust all our kids into this nuclear spill. A little bit of radiation will be good for them. Yeah. No, it's kind, of, it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, the, the idea of hormesis, actually, I mean, there is some basis to this. Um, you know, radon is kind of a naturally occurring element in, in, the, uh, in the Earth. Um, and there have been reports of people who have kind of small exposures to radon actually getting some benefit from it. So, I mean, hormesis is just the idea that um, by exposing your body to something negative, it will mount a response, and that response actually has a health benefit. So, you know, even some herbs work this way. Like you take a, a, an herb that actually has a minor toxic effect, effect on the body, and the, the response from the body is actually what um, gives you the benefit from that herb. Um, so apparently, yeah, people will visit things like radon caves and, and come out of there like saying, yeah, oh, my arthritis got better. Um, you know, so there, there is some precedent for it, but there has never been any evidence that exposure to uh, radionuclides is it will have a hormetic effect. There's no, I mean, all you have to do is look at the evidence of, of people's increased cancer rates and, you know, all the evidence from Chernobyl. You can see that this, that this effect that they're talking about is not present. You know, we didn't get any super healthy people coming from Chernobyl or even from Fukushima, you know. So the, the, this idea is so ridiculous. It, it, it's so obviously uh, a play by the powers that be to uh, to you know lessen their financial burden for as far as things like uh, cleanup go. Oh, yeah, it's just uh, it's so aggravating. And there's a big yeah, difference between naturally occurring radiation and radiation from a nuclear bomb or a nuclear power plant. Yeah, totally. Yeah, 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 and you know, contamination of the environment. Um, as we've been mentioning, bioaccumulation, uh, the fact that it does not go away. Uh, you know, it's in the water table. Uh, it's in the food. Um, it's just kind of moving around, and we're being negatively affected by it. You know, and so I, I think, Doug, that you're right. Anything that they can do to mitigate any uh, response uh, to this uh, situation, and not only that, but have people say, oh, well, it's, yeah, it's kind of good for me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, Jeez. Yeah, I, was, I, I read one article where they were talking about um, the difference between kind of a, a naturally occurring radiation exposure versus like something like exposure to kind of nuclear waste. And they were saying that it's kind of like the difference between getting uh, hit by ping pong balls uh, versus getting hit by bullets. You know, it's like... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
except the ping pong balls don't lodge in your muscle tissue and then kill cells over mm-hmm. years. Exactly. Yeah. There is nothing minor about the negative exposures we have nowadays. <laughs> no. So the question is, do cometary bombardments followed by ice ages get rid of radioactive <laughs> nuclear waste? That's a yeah. good question. Yeah. No, I have to wonder about if there actually are going to be any future civilizations on this planet, if we haven't messed things up completely. And they're just going to look back at our civilization as being a bunch of complete and total idiots. Like, just yeah. the, the level of irresponsibility and, like, just they're just going to look at us like we were, you know, a, a bunch of monkeys with technology. That was basically all all we can – that's our legacy, basically. That and plastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And styrofoam. Yeah. Not yeah. <laughs> Not to justify your disputability, but you know, iodine deficiency might play a big role there. In the mm. <laughs> it could. Yeah. Uh, speaking of that, let, let's get into a, a little bit. Um, you know what we can do. So we've we've had a pretty dark show so far. We've been talking about how much radiation is in the environment. Um, you know, just how careless uh, the powers that be have been with it. Um, but there are some things that we can do to protect ourselves, um, and uh, one of them is using iodine. And um, Gabby, do you want to talk about that a little bit? And you know, we'll, we'll probably do a future show uh, entirely about iodine. It's a deep topic. Uh, there's a lot to be gone over, but um, if we could just do kind of an introduction. Yeah, sure. So iodine is very important for our bodies, you know, for every single cell, every single organ, you know, and um, and the problem that we have nowadays is that most of the population is deficient in iodine, and not to speak that the main sources of iodine, like ocean fresh um, fish products, seaweed, you know, like what we have seen, you know, has been mostly polluted by Fukushima, by the Gulf oil spill, and so forth. And um, when we are deficient in iodine, you know, um, we have uh, an increased risk of cancer and also infections of ulcers and um, problems with our glands, you know, hypothyroidism, autoimmune diseases, and so forth. And I mentioned this because when there is like the... Uh, a nuclear accident like what happened in Chernobyl and Fukushima, there is uh, radioactive iodine and our glands, you know, are so thirsty on iodine that they will take up that very readily if we are deficient. And uh, the glands will take the radioactive iodine and what happens is that the radioactive part obviously will destroy the gland, you know, will have cancer, you know, but all kinds of problems. As we have seen, you know, there was an increased um, fibromyalgia was introduced in in Ukraine and all these areas after the Chernobyl accident. So one of the things that have been used to protect people against radioactivity and all these health problems has been to give iodine tablets or iodine solutions after the accident, you know. And um, when you have your bodies in your glands, saturated with natural iodine, with healthy iodine, your body will not uh, absorb, uh, will not take the radioactive iodine, you know. So this has been proved to be very effective um, in 
were given in Poland, for example, after, after the Chernobyl accident, it was seen that those people had less cancer, you know, at the long term compared to populations who, did, who didn't receive any iodine at all. It was also given in Japan, you know, and, uh, and yes. So this is one of the things that we do have to protect ourselves. In fact, you know, I think we mentioned this before when we, comment, when we made a comment that after the Fukushima accident, like, you know, iodine supplies, supplements, and solutions where, you know, they ran out, you know, everybody bought them through <laughs> the internet, you know, very yeah. helpful, you know. <laughs> That's very good to know that people are very uh, know about this stuff, and uh, that even if the doctors didn't recommend it, they knew about it and bought it. And uh, and yes, it is very important because as as we have seen, you know, the thyroid gland um, is the most affected gland since ra- radioactive iodine binds to it, so it makes supplemented supplemental non-radioactive iodine a key therapy in case of any nuclear radiation, any nuclear radiation. So the natural iodine binds to the thyroid, blocks the radioactive iodine from binding to it, and uh, not only the thyroid gland, but also other glands that concentrate iodine and radioactivity, like the adrenal glands, the pancreas, the heart, you know, the spleen, the liver, and so forth. So, yes, this is like one thing to have in your medical cabinet, definitely. Yeah, it is uh, it's quite important. And the iodine deficiency, like I said, is a huge uh, topic that we'll get into more. Um, and we are trying to, at the moment, book a, a guest on that topic, but that won't be for a, uh, a month or two, but we will keep everybody posted on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, there is a great book uh, that people could check out by Dr. Brownstein. Um, yeah, Brown. That is called, what is the title of that, Gabby? Iodine, Why You Need It and Why You Can't Live Without It. And it's now the fifth uh-huh. edition. And it's very important because uh, most people don't know that, you know, and, and the information is in that book, that the iodine experts, they have tested thousands of thousands of people. And 96% of patients test low for iodine. You know, this is a giant disaster because when you are low in iodine, everything will be much more toxic for you, not only nuclear toxicity, but also toxicity from fluoride in water and bromide in pesticides and all these toxic elements in the environment. You know, mm. And this is according to their information, but if you want to go even more mainstream, that you know, it's necessary. The World Health Organization has recognized that iodine, iodine deficiency is uh, the world's greatest single cause of preventable, preventable mental retardation. That's why I was saying that, you know, that Luke was commenting how people, you know, you know, with human history is like a big example of idiocy and, you know, and stupidity, huh. but, you know, how much of that can be due to low iodine levels, you know. Seriously. And it is estimated that 70%, 72% of the world's population is affected by an iodine deficiency disorder. So, yeah. yeah. And Gabby, did you find anything about um, how efficient iodine is at actually detoxifying 
um, radioactive particles once somebody actually has been uh, uh, exposed? How much is the protection you mean? Well, just I, I know it has a protective um, quality where if you're taking iodine, then you're, you're less likely to take up uh, the radioactive iodine. But will it actually detoxify the uh, radioactive iodine if you've actually already absorbed it? Oh, I see what you mean. Well, there is research on that, especially from the Chernobyl areas, and only from the health effects. Uh, that might be the case, uh, especially they claim that it prevents um, the radioactive iodine from getting absorbed. But mm. people who had, you know, supplemental iodine were better, you know, uh, in health in general. So it was not mm. only like less thyroid cancer seen, but also they had better health. And uh, as we know, you know, the nuclear radiation exposure doesn't necessarily involve only radioactive iodine. There's mm. all these strontium, lithium, and well, and all these elements that are like impossible to pronounce. Mm. So yes, iodine has a very, you know, detoxifying effect in your body, and most research is concentrated on, you know, the toxic halides that are found in pesticides, in food additives, and uh, which is like, from this show's perspective, like, you know, very mild <laughs> toxicity mm. in general, you know, compared mm. to radio, the nuclear exposure, you know. Mm. And uh, it all, it like enhances your body, you know, way to detoxify and um, enhances your body's health in such a way that I could be hopeful that, yes, it will be toxified nuclear radioactivity. Hmm. Well, if I'm not mistaken, iodine has been shown to fight uh, certain types of cancers. Uh, so if, uh, you know, something like that had already taken root, uh, you can combat against it by taking iodine. I know there's quite a bit of research that shows that iodine can be used to uh, destroy melanomas. Um hmm. With topical use, uh, and there's some there's some pretty incredible case studies about that. Yeah, it also makes me wonder because iodine is something that was widely used in the 19th century. You know, it's like the first medical uh, medical treatment choice. And uh, from what I've been reading from the literature and experiences in general, it is my impression that um, detox. Symptoms are, you know, more pronounced lately, like in the people who tried iodine in the last few years, so to speak, as opposed to the 90s, you know. So one wonders how mm. much of that is due to our increased exposure to all these toxic elements. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as detox goes, too, I know that uh, clay... Uh, bentonite and montmorillonite clay uh, have been shown to be very effective uh, for detoxing heavy metals and uh, radioactive isotopes, uh, you know, if it can get to them. Uh, of course, there are certain parts of the body uh, where clay will not necessarily reach, but as far as detoxing your um, intestinal tract, uh, it works quite well. Uh, there's a great website uh, that I'd like to kind of push um, called Aiton's Earth. It's E. Y T O N F Earth dot org, uh, and that is run by a guy named Jason Eaton, um, who uh, 
um, sells this clay, but also does a lot of research. And he wrote a book called Upon a Clay Tablet, The Definitive Guide to Healing with Homeostatic Clays. Um, and he has a, a couple different types of clays that are used for different applications. There's internal, external. Um, I've been using the internal clay uh, for some time and uh, I've noticed some benefits from it. Um, <clears throat> and I know that uh, historically, uh, bentonite clay was used you know, in uh, Chernobyl, uh, that they gave it to people in chocolate bars after Chernobyl happened hmm. um, and in the local area there. And they also... Uh, used it uh, to clean the muscle tissue of cows uh, that had been irradiated and were able to make the meat uh, edible after giving the cows bentonite clay. So it's got some really interesting properties. So there are... uh, I guess I may have mispronounced it. It's, uh, It's... I'll say Eaton's Earth. It's uh, E-Y-T-O-N-S, earth.org, and I'll post that in the chat here. Um, and that has a lot of good research and uh, a link to the uh, the book. Um, it's pretty chock full of information. I'm going to be looking up a recipe for uh, bentonite chocolate bars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the internal the internal clay is actually very uh, not bad. It's not gritty like you would think. Uh, it's really really super fine powder. Um, so uh, today after the pet health segment, um, I think I may have done this in, in once in the past for the show, but uh, I'll just go over the um, you know the practice of, of taking the clay uh, in case anybody's curious. Um, but uh, so we've seen you know. We've, we've talked about kind of the dark side. Um, we've talked about a few things that uh, that you can do uh, to combat this. I think, you know, one is uh, a psychological resilience, um, you know, keeping your head on straight after learning about uh, really, you know, ostensibly depressing information, um, using that to, uh, to clarify your thoughts and your intent. Uh, in your daily life and just, you know, in general using it to help you appreciate the moment. Um, you know, the the world may be going to hell in a handbasket, but that doesn't mean that we all have to curl up in a fetal position in the corner. Uh, in fact, <laughs> I think that's what, that's what the powers that be would like us to do, uh, mm-hmm. to basically just kind of allow them to run amok and have nobody, um, you know, speaking positive things or trying to share the truth about what the situation is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, physically, uh, we, you know, there's iodine, there's clay, uh, and as I said, we'll talk more about iodine in the future. Um, and we we have in past episodes talked about other um, methods of fighting cancer, um, you know, high doses of vitamin C, um, which, of course, you have to be careful about if you have hemochromatosis, but there's a lot of information on that. Um you know, using turmeric and using other herbal uh, supplements to increase your immune response uh, so that, you know, we're not completely helpless here. We're not just kind of being bombarded with, with nothing, no options uh, that we have at, at hand. Uh, we do have options to, to help treat ourselves and to make our bodies stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So with that, let's let's go to the pet health segment. We have a segment from Zoya today uh, talking about EMF radiation and uh, animals. And um, this is about 12 minutes long. And then when we come back, I'll just talk briefly about uh, taking uh, bentonite clay uh, internally. And, uh, and then we'll wrap it up. So we'll be right back after this. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health Segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya, and today I would like to share with you a very interesting snippet from a lecture about the harmful effects of electromagnetic radiation. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to find out the exact name of the speaker, but the information comes from the site emsnews.com, dedicated to collecting scientific research on this topic. It's true that electromagnetic radiation may seem as less scary than the radiation from the disasters like Chernobyl or Fukushima, but as we could learn from several previous health and wellness shows dedicated to this topic, man-made electromagnetic radiation uh, is extremely dangerous, and not only because it reaches every square centimeter of Earth's surface at every moment, harming people, animals, insects, and plant life. Electromagnetic pollution has been imposed upon us by military and industrial interests with uh, devastating health, environmental and social consequences. From microwave and radio frequency radiation to extremely low frequency fields. So in the following snippet that, uh, by the way, ends with a cliffhanger, sorry about that, the speaker shares uh, what is happening to us on a microcellular level. It may seem complicated, but just listen up since he explains it in a very simple and clear way. Also, since humans and animals share the same physiology, the same processes and structures uh, can be applied to our pets as well. Also, the consequences and the influence of the harming uh, electromagnetic radiation. We are all like fish swimming in a poison tank and doing our best, unaware that things could be so much different and better. So here it is. I hope you'll you'll find the information interesting and useful. And that there was nothing surrounding cells through the microtubules. It says we're under attack. We're under siege. Protect yourself. We're going to protect ourselves. And one of the things that the cell membrane does is send a message that results in closing down active transport channels in the cell. And we, we call that hardening of the cell membrane. The permeability of the membrane is compromised. Nutrients cannot get in the cell. Waste product cannot get out of the cell. Now, because nutrients cannot get into the cell the cell loses energy. So the cell becomes energy deficient. And when the cell is energy deficient, it's not able to communicate through microtubules. 
The reason is because microtubule communication is like sending a laser. It's instantaneous light energy. It takes a lot of power, a lot of energy to push that signal through the microtubule so that the intercellular communication, the rapid intercellular communication gets shut off. So now the cells are not able to talk to each other. And when the cells are not able to talk to each other, the tissues are not able to be efficient. And the organs are not able to be efficient. And the organism gets sick. And that's why when you intervene with a subtle energy intervention, immediately you get a positive response because the intercellular communication is restored. Because the subtle energy comes in and it vibrates on the microtubules. Now, the microtubules are usually full of water. Now, in order for there to be communication, energy communication, the microtubule has to contract and expand. It has to go like that. And when that happens, there's a little hole in the water channel. And that's where the signal goes. Now, when you bring in the subtle energy from the outside, it causes the microtubule to go, and that's what restores the intercellular communication. Now, the other thing that happens is that waste product can't get out of the cell. So now you have a buildup of waste, and in that waste you have free radicals. Now, free radicals are interesting. I trust I'm not the only person in the audience who participated in the 60s. We, it has nothing to do with whether I inhaled or anything like that. And a free radical always likes a party. A free radical will always go where the action is. And inside the cell, the action happens at the mitochondria. The mitochondria are always having a party. That is where all of the energy from the cell is developed. It's the respiratory center of the cell. So what happens is these free radicals go to the mitochondria. They crash the party. And when that happens, the mitochondria, whose job it is to provide energy for the cell, becomes further compromised. So energy in the cell goes down more. Now the other thing that happens is that inside the cell you have something called messenger RNA. Now messenger RNA is part of the genetic material. And what the messenger RNA does is it floats around in the cell and it just is sort of like the bouncer at a party want to make sure everything's going fine. And if it sees something that is not going fine, it folds itself in a certain way so it can carry a message to the DNA. Now what happens when the cell is under siege and the active transport channels are closed down? 
The messenger RNA take that information from the inside of the cell membrane and they take that information to the DNA, both in the nucleus and in the mitochondria. When the messenger RNA comes in and starts to convey that information, it results in a whole bunch of pieces of messenger RNA and DNA to be unbound inside the cell. And when those pieces of messenger RNA and DNA are unbound, they're highly reactive. They are viewed by the free radicals as a party. The free radicals go and now they disrupt the process of information transfer from the messenger RNA to the DNA. A result of that is the formation of something called micronuclei. And micronuclei are pieces of DNA or messenger RNA that function well enough to form a membrane around themselves. So now what you have inside the cell are these pieces of DNA that have formed a membrane around themselves and they're floating around in the cell. And that would be fine. Except that because the free radicals have disrupted the mitochondria, the mitochondria now sends a message to the rest of the cell saying, I cannot do my job anymore. I'm going down. The ship is going down. And that triggers something called apoptosis. And apoptosis is when a cell commits suicide to make room for a fresh cell. And when you have that premature triggering of apoptosis, now you have the cell bursting open. And under normal circumstances, that would be fine because the pieces of waste and the pieces of micronuclei that are released into the interstitial fluid, the river between cells, would normally be gobbled up by globulins from the immune system. But somebody's got to make the call to the immune system. And we have compromised intercellular communication. That call is never made. So now what happens is you have these micronuclei who are released into nutrient-rich intercellular fluid. And they have a ball. And they proliferate. And they clone themselves. And that is a mechanism that leads to the development of tumors. When the intercellular communication is disrupted, Depending on when in life that occurs, you have different symptoms. If that occurs in utero, the symptom you have might be autism. And if that occurs during teenage years, the symptom you have might be attention deficit disorder or unexplained anxiety. And if that occurs in very late decades of life, you may have Parkinson's or Alzheimer's disease. So the disruption of intercellular communication leads to all of those 
clinical conditions. So that when you disrupt intracellular communication, you can lead to a whole host of serious diseases. But the situation is worse than that. Because what happens is that depending on where the cell is in its life cycle, it may not trigger premature apoptosis. radiation. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's uh, let's wrap up the show here today. I just wanted to uh, to mention uh, about using uh, bentonite clay internally. Um, if you uh, check out that site that I posted in the chat again, that's uh, Eaton's Earth or Eaton's Earth E Y T O N S Earth dot org. Um, there are a number of different uh, types of clay available there. Um, and there are ones that are specified for internal use. But the process is uh, kind of specific. So what you do is start out uh, for the first week or so, uh, week to two weeks, but at least a week, um, by taking <clears throat> about a quarter teaspoon of the clay and putting it in water um, and then allowing it, you know, stir it up and then allow it to sit overnight. And that allows the clay to absorb the water and kind of plump up the small particles of clay. Um, and for this first week, all you do is drink the water off the top and you leave the sediment on the bottom and then you can discard that. Um, what that does is kind of primes your system uh, because if you take all of the clay internally without having done it before, it can cause constipation uh, and some GI issues. Um, so you just drink the water off the top uh, for the first week or so. And then after that, uh, you can begin to stir the clay into the water uh, the next morning. But you always want to let the clay sit in the water overnight. Um, to usually use a, a glass jar, you know, don't use plastic. And uh, the clay is extremely absorbent, so it's important not to have it come into contact with metal. Um, so usually you always use uh, glass for this. Um, but then after that, you can use just use that quarter teaspoon size uh, dose in the water, stir that up, and then... Um, and drink it down. And uh, that actually imparts quite a bit of energy, I've found. Uh, it's kind of similar to the energy that you get from iodine. Um, and it helps with uh, detoxing. It helps with digestion. Um, it has a number of uh, really beneficial effects. Um, so, again, there's more information on that website. I don't want to go into too much detail right now. Um, but I encourage people to check it out. So... Well, that's our, our show for uh, for today. I would like to thank everybody for tuning in and hanging with us through this kind of depressing topic. Um, although, as we talked about, it's it's good to know about. Um, and, uh, you know, just use the information. Uh, if it comes up with other people, uh, get into a conversation. You know, spread the truth about what the situation is in the world today and um, just to help 
to spread more awareness about health and wellness and what people can do to keep their bodies healthy. So we'd like to thank everybody for tuning in. Thanks to our chat participants. Um, and be sure to tune in to the other two uh, shows on the SOT Radio Network, The Truth Perspective, tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern, and Behind the Headlines on Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern as well. Um, so thanks again, everybody, and we will see you next week. Bye, Bye everybody. Bye. Bye.